Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Want to teach your kids financial literacy but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Mark Lee Morrison from the podcast Low Profile. I live in Olympia, Washington with my wife and two daughters, and I support Vishkana's creative control on Patreon because I appreciate his journalistic integrity. Vish talks with a lot of artists I care about, and he never asks any boring questions. I love hearing his interviews, and as a Patreon supporter, I get to hear even more of them. If you enjoy creative control too, I implore you to join me as a sustaining contributor. To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, please visit patreon.com slash creative control today. Please consider supporting Black Women United YEG for the protection and advancement of black women and girls in Alberta. You can learn more about them at bwunited.ca. They are always looking for donations and volunteers. So please, again, support Black Women United YEG for the protection and advancement of black women and girls in Alberta. Again, that website is bwunited.ca. Joe Wong is a musician, composer, producer, and well-regarded podcast host based in California. A dynamic drummer who's performed with many artists and within various genres, he's also composed the scores for TV shows like Master of None, Russian Doll, and The Midnight Gospel, as well as documentaries like Independent Lens and Six Days to Air. Wong is the host of the interview podcast The Trap Set, which began as a showcase for influential and prominent drummers in conversation, but has since expanded to feature other musicians. All of these experiences have fed into Wong's debut solo album, Night Creatures, an ambitious and intricately orchestrated collection of psychedelic rock and pop music, all co-produced by Mary Timoney of Helium, and featuring contributions by Mary Lattimore, Stephen Drozd of The Flaming Lips, Anna Waronker of That Dog, and Craig Wedrin of Shudder to Think, among others. Night Creatures is available now via Decca Records, and Joe and I caught up recently to have a chat about the sound and lyrical intent on this record. Creative fear, creative compulsions, and theories about drummers and their behavioral psychology. The Trap Set, 
podcasting and interviewing, future plans, and much more. A part of the Entertainment One Network with the support of listeners like you who follow and subscribe to this podcast and spread the word about it and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash creativecontrol and Massey Hall's concert film series live at masseyhall.com where you can stream dozens of 30-minute films for free including performances by past podcast guests like Jennifer Castle plus in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton. This is the 567th episode of Creative Control, featuring the multi-talented Joe Wong with your host, me, Vishkana. Hey, Joe. How's it going? Not bad. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. Thanks for asking. Uh, where in the world are you? I'm in Pasadena, California. Oh, boy. How are things going in Pasadena, California? I said, oh, boy, because uh, there are fires and earthquakes in California these days and social unrest and a pandemic and all sorts of things. How's life going for you? Well, luckily, uh, you know, my life is great. I'm doing fine. Uh, I feel the psychic weight of all of the things that you mentioned. I can't go outside and run until the middle of the night when the air clears up. But aside from that, you know, I'm very fortunate. That's great. That's great to hear. That's great to hear. I feel the same. Uh, I'm working from home a lot uh, here. And uh, I'm calling from Edmonton, Alberta. Have you ever been to Edmonton, Alberta or, or Canada generally? Well, I've been to Calgary, Alberta, but I have not been to Edmonton. Oh, cool. What brought you to Calgary? Uh, there was a music fest that I played. Ah, was it Sled Island, by chance? Yes, it was Sled Island. Ah, it's a lovely... Did you have a good time? Yeah. Now, how how long ago was that that you played Sled Island? I think it was 2011. Oh, cool. Yeah, so weirdly enough, I the first and only time, I guess, I attended Sled Island uh, was in 2012. I'm originally from Ontario, so I just moved to uh, Alberta in January, but uh, I did attend the Sled Island Fest and... Uh, yeah, it's cool. You do so. You just so people are clear, and you know, we'll get to this. You do a lots of different things. You're known uh, by some as a, the host of the Trap Said podcast. Uh, you're known uh, by others as a musician. Some know you for doing both, I suppose. Uh, do you consider yourself first and foremost a musician at this point? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I sometimes wonder what the side hustle is, but you are a very accomplished. Uh, musician, you've uh, scored uh, various things uh, for Netflix and whatnot. So, principally, you consider yourself a musician. What is your background in music exactly, Joe? Well, I started playing piano when I was six years old. Uh, before that, I was a huge music fan. I can remember listening to records on my Fisher Price turntable as young as age three or four, and. Um, I played piano and, and then in school later played violin and clarinet. Um, but then at age 11, I discovered the drum set and that really felt like my vehicle into the larger world of music. It was the first instrument that I played that really felt related to the kind of music that I was listening to. 
and made it feel as though now I when could you say the music first of all i'm also a drummer uh if i may uh and uh, I had sort of a similar epiphanies. I started a, a bit later than you by the sounds of it. Uh, when you say the music that you heard, you know, with playing the drums sort of felt like, you know, you could relate more to the music you were hearing. What kinds of music were you hearing? Uh, and, and how did it relate to the drumming that you were doing? Well, I wasn't particularly listening to clarinet music when I was playing clarinet, <laughs> for example. <laughs> Um, I mean, subsequently, I, you know, I love Benny Goodman and, and such, but um, I wasn't listening to that at the time. I was listening to pop music, uh, you know, most of which has a beat. So it felt easily translatable. Um, you know, it felt like I could exist in that world. Now, before that, uh, one thing I've noticed or I've kind of come to terms with as a drummer is... On some level, people don't always regard drummers this way, but you're kind of central. The drummer is very integral to everything else going on on stage, I'd like to think. I don't know if that's just my bias as a drummer, but do you have a perspective on the role of the drummer in a configuration of any kind? Don't you don't Again, we both might have a bias here, but don't you think the drummer is particularly important to any ensemble? Well, I think if it's a great ensemble, everybody is of equal importance. Um, but, you know, the drummer historically plays a foundational role. Um, you know, they always say that you can't have a great band without having a great drummer. So, you know, in the same sense that you can't <laughs> build a house with a shaky foundation, you can't build a band with a shaky foundation. Right. That said, I mean, I think I think that that can mean several different things. And in some cases, I don't think of the drummer in, in that role. You know, there are certain cases where the drummer is playing more of a melodic role. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it just depends. But of course, I love drummers. Well, yes. And you've interviewed some of the finest people to, to ever do it. Um, so that I, I will say that I think drummers are often undervalued. So maybe your bias is in a response to that. I mean, I can say as somebody that, as you mentioned, has spoken to lots of drummers, you know, they're often the ones cast aside from a band um, (laughs) that they helped make great. Uh, That you don't see that happening as frequently with vocalists or even guitar players. Um, Yeah. So I think that the the drummer's value is underappreciated. So, I, one of the things I was alluding to in terms of reflecting upon uh, my choice in taking on the drums, which for me in my city that I grew up in was kind of out of necessity. Everyone was trying to play guitar. So my friends and I were like, well, somebody's got to play drums. So we looked in like the, uh, we, uh, do you, does America, do you have the penny, the penny saver, like a classified ad newspaper? Do you guys mm-hmm. have that? Yeah, you have mm-hmm. that? Yeah. So we I don't look- know if it still exists, but yeah, I remember it. Yeah, I don't know if it does either. But we looked in it, and someone was selling like a $300 drum kit. So we pooled our money, and we brought it to a garage. And then I took to it. Like, I just got on it, and I could kind of do it. Like, not great, but, you know, I was a kid. But that's kind of how I started playing. But as you talk about drummers being cast aside and undervalued, I think there's a power dynamic thing going on there. Because in, in sort of reflecting upon myself and maybe control issues I've had in the past uh, and that I'm trying to, to reconcile, the drummer is kind of a controlling role, isn't it? I mean, if the, if the drummer's having an off 
day or or can't play well that the whole thing kind of suffers that's kind of what i'm i'm not suggesting it's necessarily a great thing that it's such an integral role but it is integral in that regard if the drummer's off things go south so do you have those feelings about yourself and when you think about yourself did you gravitate towards the drums because you wanted to assert some sort of leadership role uh in your life and in and in these configurations no I just uh, got a visceral joy from playing drums that I hadn't experienced with other instruments. Hmm. And if I go deeper into the psychoanalysis, I don't really think that it has to do with wanting to control things. Okay. Um, That said, I've noticed that lots of drummers are often, you know, the logistical uh, minds of the bands that they're associated with and often are the ones kind of in charge of, say anything from packing the van to the business concerns of the band. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, th- and I've also noticed that lots of drummers have become good composers. Um, and I think it takes, uh, two qualities that, that are common between composers and drummers are, um, an enormous amount of em- empathy. Uh, as a drummer, you have to understand what the songwriter, if it's not you is, um, trying to express and you have to be able to, um, bolster that message. And also, um, I think drummers tend to have a more analytical mind than other members of the band. And I think that helps as a composer. Yeah. But the rap, the, the, the jokes about musicians are often either at the expense of the drummer or the bass player. Aren't they generally, we are ridiculed for our leadership skills. Cause I agree with you. I was always the one booking the tours uh, you know, settling up at the end of the night, packing the vans, you know. There's something going on there with drummers, I think. I, I know you 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 poo-pooed my idea a little bit, but then you <laughs> went on to say, actually, yeah, like there, there's something going on there. So, yeah, I I just, I'm, I'm curious, because you've, you've had to think about drummers a lot uh, as a drummer and in your work, I, I'm sure. It, it, it's, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating role, isn't it? Sure. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I think that drummers, uh, the, the, the fascination with the podcast started because I think drummers are the least interviewed members of the band. Um, so there was untapped gold there. Mm. And are you still, you, the, the trap set is, is going, it's a going concern. Are you still, uh, enjoying it? Yeah. Uh, after 200 episodes, we expanded the scope to include all musicians and, um, at the beginning of the pandemic, I expanded to daily episodes because for the first time I decided to try recording over the phone or over FaceTime. And, um, you know, some of the guests that we had during that first month of daily episodes included folks like Flea, Sharon Van Etten, Angel Olsen, Billy Gibbons of ZZ Top, etc. And, and so that was really fun and it kind of breathed new life into the um, podcast and um, the most recent episode, we kind of returned to our roots and had one of the great drummers, Steve Jordan. Yeah, um, but I've been taking a, a, a short hiatus because I've been working on promoting the album I just made. Yeah, it's a lovely album. It's called uh, Night Creatures, and uh, I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about uh, its conception. Um, where did the Where did this start? Where did the uh, the idea for this particular record? Uh, begin for you um i i just had a a yearning to make an album to make a personal statement 
at the time that I started writing it, I was also scoring the show Russian Doll, and it was inspiring to see Natasha Leone, who co-created that show, make a personal statement. And previously, she had been known as a great actor for many years, but this was the first really vulnerable personal statement that she'd made as kind of an auteur. Hmm. Um, and I think I took a cue from that, and also just my you know, internal compass was pointing in that direction. And um, I, it's something I'd wanted to do for a good decade, but just for whatever reason, hadn't had the wherewithal to do so. And I asked myself why I'm able to write hundreds of hours of music for other people every year, but not make my own statement. And um, I mean, I think the answer is that it requires a different level of vulnerability to be the arbiter of whether it's working or not. When I'm when I'm working for somebody else, they're the arbiter and I'm there to help, um, heighten their vision or elevate their project. Um, but when I'm left to my own devices, then my neuroses kick in. So Hmm. what I ended up doing and what ended up working for me is setting up a structure, um, not unlike my scoring routine, wherein I had a finite amount of time. I brought in somebody to help produce the great Mary Timoney so that I would be accountable to a person other than myself and would have a structure to work within. And it it worked great. In terms of that structure, how was that kind of established or or implemented? What what did Mary uh, bring to the proceedings that guided you in, in such a way? Well, I'm I'm just used to getting feedback from other people when I work on music, whether it's a filmmaker or a showrunner. And I think it can be useful to have external ears on the project. So I brought in somebody who had made several records that I love and who has been doing it for 30 plus years and somebody whom I have a close relationship with as a friend and whose aesthetic closely matches mine. Hmm. So she was the perfect person for the project. And, um, she was, you know, my champion at times. She was the person that I could turn to if I thought something could be better for validation that that was true. Or, you know, she was also the person to tell me that enough's enough, move on. You've got the take. Um, and, uh, just the act of flying her out here and, and booking a studio outside of my own regular studio made everything feel more deliberate. I'm, you know, I had a time and a place to work on this record that was, you know, reserved specifically for this record rather than trying to fit it in in spare time around other projects. Right. The studio you used was in uh, Joshua Tree, California, I believe. Uh, What was that like? I've never been. I mean, a lot of us know of it because of the uh, album made by you, two and other uh, music lore, I suppose. Um, what, what, what was it actually like to be in Joshua tree? Uh, my understanding is the studio is kind of isolated, right? Right. And that was the, that was the idea, but Joshua tree is a great place. Um, the studio itself was like slightly outside of Joshua tree proper. Um, and it was a great sounding room and that's really all we needed. Um, but Joshua tree has, you know, mystical outsider vibes, um, some really great places to eat and hang out and um, not much else uh, outside of the beautiful park um, in the way of distractions. So it was just a place to go um, that felt like it fit the vibe of the album. (laughs) Right. And um, 
and it was outside of my normal working environment, right? Which was really helpful, right? So, in terms of this, the vibe of the album, uh, which you just referenced, I, I'm wondering if you can characterize it. I've seen people describe it as you know psychedelic rock. Uh, you know, when I listen to it, I I hear echoes of uh, the Beatles and the Beach Boys and and uh, the Zombies. You know, kind of along the lines of sort of mid to late '60s uh, uh, studio exploration uh, and orchestral arrangements, these kinds of things. Um, but I'm curious to you know, uh, what, what do you? How would you characterize uh, the sound of Night Creatures? Uh, orchestral psychedelic. Pop music um, <laughs> is a reductive characterization. I, I wouldn't characterize it, but since you know, since I have to, that's how I would characterize it. Okay. Um, it, it wasn't something where I had a particular aesthetic in mind that I was seeking out. Um, it, it, I think it was really just the product of my personal taste, and obviously, all the groups that you mentioned are are bands that I love dearly along with lots of others but um you know it was it was just songs that i heard in my mind it, it wasn't like i set out to write a particular type of record um mm. but i think because i'm often working with orchestrations as a film and tv composer that's something that i'm you know uniquely qualified to to work with in these songs and it's something that i heard in my mind from the start so that was what factored into the decision to use those instruments. So how does the uh, sound of this record relate to some of your recent uh, compositional work, your scoring work, and, and maybe uh, previous releases of your own? I'm just curious if it, it feels like a departure for you, or does it, does it feel like it's part of a continuum? Uh, well, to me, it feels like it's part of a continuum because it's the part of the continuum of my consciousness but um <laughs> i definitely think you know it's it's certainly different from any of the bands that i've played in as a drummer um the, the last artist that i played with as a drummer was marnie stern who's a guitar shredder mm. um who makes you know her own brand of wonderful music but I, I don't really see any commonalities between what i'm doing and what she was doing mm. and um similarly i don't see any much of a through line from my other longstanding band parts and labor, which I played drums in yeah. to this. Um, but I'm sure that there, you know, those experiences informed what I was doing to some extent. It's just not, um, obvious, uh, to me, but I, I'm sure that it, I'm sure that everybody that I've ever played with is on there at some point. <laughs> um, as far as it relating to my composition work, I mean, I think it's just very different in the sense that the intention is different, um, with composition work, Again, I'm there to kind of build some a you know a piece of couture music to somebody else's parameters. You know, it's like being an architect or cooking a meal for somebody else. Whereas this is like making a sculpture or cooking a meal for myself. Um, so the the intention is very different. But I think the skill set that I developed as a composer is it, it, it translates. It seems to me that maybe over the past decade, you have been utilizing your skills and your your drive to showcase other people, like or, or rather to to bring other people's visions to fruition. Like when you talk about uh, the scoring work and the compositional work you're doing for others, you're you're helping someone there. You're working with them. And when I think about your your podcast, the way I think about my podcast is that it feels less about me and more about 
more more something for my guest. You know, I don't feel I feel like I have this role to play, but it doesn't really. I've never really viewed as viewed it as something to uh, to further me. I like I like kind of the, the fulfilling part is that I'm spreading the word about someone else's work, and it, it just seems to me that I don't know if you agree with that in terms of your own trajectory, but it seems to me that Night Creatures is something that kind of like a pent up expression. You've been, it is you finally after about a decade of showcasing other people and giving them the spotlight. Uh, what do you make of that? Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I, I mean, I definitely think that there are elements of me in everything that I've done up until now. And I think allowing that to happen is important. I mean, it's true that my podcast is largely a platform to help tell the stories of other people, but I would think that my way of interacting with those people gives those stories a unique structure or mm-hmm. it makes it a unique platform. Mm-hmm. So there's an element of me there. Uh, and also I'm the one that's curating the show largely. So it's, it correlates with my own personal taste. And then as far as, you know, playing drums in other people's bands, you know, in many cases, I was not the primary songwriter. So although there are creative elements to the way that I'm playing drums, I'm functioning more like an actor and less like a writer, you know, which is a creative, you know, obviously being an actor is a creative endeavor, but it's an interpretive endeavor. Mm -hmm. I think drumming in bands where I didn't write the songs is similar to that. And then, uh, you know, as a composer, I think, you know, especially recently I'm composing music that I'm uniquely qualified Mm -hmm. to write, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's in service of somebody else's vision ultimately. So I think you're right. I think that this album is, uh, you know, as close to a a distillation of who I am as uh, anything I've put out. But that said, you know, I, I think it's, it's, um, it's not something that's generated by me. It's something that, you know, comes from somewhere else and is filtered through my experience, if that makes sense. It does. It does make sense. And I know you alluded to this uh, earlier and again, sort of just now, but I want to home in on what exactly prompted this, let's call it a shift, a shift from working on uh, things that were more or less in service of other people to, to focusing again on on yourself a little bit and working with the people you worked with to bring uh, your own vision uh, to fruition here. What do you reckon, and within this, I hope we can get into some of the lyrical uh, content here. Uh, what do you suppose it was that actually finally spurred you out of uh, that mode of, of doing work with and for other people into uh, expressing yourself? What did you need to say at this point, Joe? Well, as I mentioned before, um, you know, I was scoring simultaneous to making this album. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't I wouldn't characterize the two endeavors as mutually exclusive. Right. Okay, sure. But um, to answer your question, I think I was just ready to do it. And I think that um, the podcast in particular, making my podcast um, helped prepare me. I, I think of each each of the conversations I have as kind of like a rung in a ladder that pulled me out of a kind of creatively dark place that I was in when I started the show. Um, I think when I started the podcast, I had been touring quite a lot for many years. Um, I started touring when I was 17 and when I started the podcast, I was 34, Hmm. um, or 33. And 
I wasn't experiencing any kind of visceral joy um, by playing music at that point. It was um, a muted joy mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, or some sort of intellectual satisfaction, but it, it felt kind of like a companionate marriage. Um, you know, the, the, the thrill was gone. The, um, the excitement was gone. And I was asking myself if that was sufficient. Is is that enough (laughs) to sustain me for the rest of my life? Or was what I was feeling, what was it? What was that feeling trying to tell me? Was it that I should move on to something else, uh, entirely? Was it that something was wrong that I needed to fix? And I think by having conversations, asking other musicians if they'd ever experienced similar things, and simply by having conversations and interacting with people face-to-face for an hour at a time every week, um, and by releasing that out into the world every single week for several years, um, I kind of set up another system of accountability where, you know, there was there were folks that wanted to talk to me and there was an audience for the show. And I was able to kind of work through my neuroses with my musical heroes too, and, mm. and learn that I was not alone in that feeling. And, um, through doing that, I kind of decided that I was going to give it another go. And, uh, you know, like I said, I, I realized that I had the skill set to write songs. So something else was blocking me, some sort of, you know, psychological problem or fear, and that's why I kind of set up that structure that I spoke about before to kind of circumvent that fear or better equip myself to face it. Do you have a, and I don't mean to pry, but you, you, you broached it. So I'll, I'll follow up here. Do you have a sense now of where that fear emanates from? And, and do you have a hand, a better handle on that fear now? Absolutely. I mean, I think the fact that I successfully, created the album and made it something that I like, uh, is huge. And it just propels me to want to make more. Hmm. Um, and I, and what I've, one of the things that I learned through doing the podcast, um, and I can remember having this conversation with Sheila E is that that fear is, is the North star. You want to head towards it. Oh, (laughs) and that's what she, that's her philosophy is whatever she's kind of, whatever is giving her butterflies and what she's scared about that's what she moves towards because that's the creative for creatively fertile ground. Well, um, so, 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 and so I, that's, that's proven to be true. Yeah. Some people in their vocational lives, that fear is a fear of failure. Uh, but when we make things or do things in public, whether you're a musician or you host a podcast, you know, you're kind of learning in public. So the other fear Within that fear of failing is the fear of humiliating yourself, I suppose. I know they can be kind of similar fears in a sense, but do you know what I mean? Like, do you see the distinction between the two, like this public work we do? Yes. Um, I, I don't know that that's the, the center of what I was afraid of. I think that I'm just really, really hard on myself historically, mm-hmm. and um, I think that that was a benefit that benefited me for a long time. But I I think it had gotten me to a place where I had achieved, um, you know, very advanced technical skills in certain areas, but I was not asking myself what those skills were in service of, you know? So I, I wanted to 
steer myself to a place where those skills could be used to make a statement. In terms of the podcast and what you know, you mentioned you learn things by talking to musicians, and that has informed uh, your a certain kind of fearlessness as a player, as a composer, and, and that's heartening to hear. We kind of talked a little bit about potential musical influences on you. Do you have uh, broadcasting or interview influences, interviewer influences per se? Yeah, but first I want to say that I don't think that I have a fearlessness. I just think I'm more comfortable pursuing the things that make me scared and feel and and I'm accepting that those are the things that will probably produce the most interesting life for myself. Okay. Okay. Um whereas before I I wouldn't. But um as far as broadcasting um influences uh around the time that I started doing the podcast um Mark Marin's show was just starting to take off and I really liked listening to that while I was on tour. And I've always been a huge fan of Terry Gross. And I think um, I try to fall somewhere in between the two of them uh, as far as interview style is concerned. Whereas um, Mark rarely prepares for interviews and is very good at just being in the moment with somebody and, um, and, kind of zoning in on people's emotional state. Terry Gross is really methodical and prepared. And so, you know, I've, I've found um, that my style probably fits somewhere, you know, between, between the two approaches. Okay. Now, do you hear, you know, uh, do you edit your own show? If I may get uh, behind the curtain a little bit, do you edit your own uh, podcast? No, I have an editor called Chris Karwowski. Um, and I met Chris because he was an onion writer for many years and we were friends in New York and, um, he has a great narrative sense, uh, as a writer and is not a professional musician and kind of w- one of the important things about our show that I think distinguishes us from other music shows is that I don't, I'm not interested in talking about, uh, the minutia of, you know, technique or too much about process. Um, it's more about the life that informs the process. So by having Chris involved, um, we could kind of shape the narrative to be hopefully more universally appealing. Right. I asked about the editing because I have found in editing myself that I, uh, it teaches you what to do and not to do a bit because you're stuck with yourself in your head. And you're like, dude, like, why are you, (laughs) you know, over the years, I hope I've improved. Do you have a a sense that you have gotten better at it? And and if so, can you identify uh, things that, that sort of, that bolster that feeling? Like, oh, I don't, yeah, I used to do a thing and now I don't do it anymore. Do you have that feeling uh, about your own work as a podcaster? I think I'm a better listener now and I try to speak less than I used to before. Um, so I think those are the ways that I've, those are the main ways that I've improved. Was there anything in particular that sparked that, that sparked that sort of realization? Cause as I say, like for me, it's week in and week out of doing this. You, that's what I learned too, that the real art of interviewing someone is listening, not necessarily talking. Um, which I don't know that I think that's sort of spreading now that feeling like you got to listen. So, uh, yeah. Was there any, were there particular episodes or was there, 
a moment where you're like, yeah, you know what? I got to make a bit of a shift in how I approach this. No, I don't think there was any sort of conscious uh, thought that went into it. I think it just happened slowly over the course of doing the show for, uh, I guess it's now coming up on uh, six, seven years. Oh, congratulations. That's great. <laughs> Thanks. Do you ever like, uh, let's just have a podcast to podcast uh, chat here, head to head. Does it ever uh, feel daunting to, to do this in this climate where so many of these things exist? And, uh, you know, you, you mentioned taking a bit of a hiatus so you could uh, talk about this record that you made. Uh, and I don't really take those kinds of breaks. So sometimes I and sometimes I wonder why I should probably take a break every once in a while. Even when I go on vacation, I pre-schedule these things. And I'm like, why am I doing this? Do you ever have these philosophical questions about, you know, why are we, why am I doing this right now in this crowded field? Do you, do you have those thoughts? Well, I would say for the first, I would five years we we did weekly episodes, come rain or shine, and I was glad to do that. I, I think it was really healthy. But um, you know, it's my podcast, and uh, you know, ultimately, I have to follow my gut. And if I'm feeling like something else is more creatively interesting, I don't want to just go through the podcast by rote. I want to make sure that I'm engaged. So if my attention needs to be on something else, I can take a little break. And I think we've earned that, you know, coming up on 300 episodes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe I should take your advice. I'm almost at 600 episodes. No real breaks. I, I took, I, you know, I take breaks when there are illness or tragedies or things like that. But even then I feel compelled to keep going. It's a, it's a compulsion. I've talked to a few. I remember having the, the fellas from Silkworm on. Uh, do you know, you know that band Silkworm? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they were talking about this, like, you know, they both kind of just keep making records and keep writing songs, sometimes after declaring they're not going to do it anymore. Uh, it's a compulsion, and they can't quite stop it. I mean, I'm sure you've encountered that drive in some of the subjects you've interviewed. Um, you seem to have a more rational <laughs> take on it. If I need to take a break from this, it's I can come back to it. Um and but do you see how some people don't seem to see it that way like they just have to make things no matter what yeah definitely and i i would say that i fall into that category uh i mean if i'm taking a break from the podcast it's because i'm working 90 hours a week writing music um mm -hmm. but i i also recognize that i don't really want to be compulsive about making things i want it to come from a place of uh, I want to desire to make something. Otherwise, what's the point? It, it has to yeah. give me some sort of joy or illumination in some way. Otherwise, I'm just not interested in doing it. But I do know that, you know, if I look at my life for the last 30 years that I, you know, I can just trust that I, <laughs> I'll find things that I want to make. But I don't think I need to make the podcast just to do it, you know, or just to be consistent. I think that would be a disservice to my listeners if if I wasn't yeah. really engaged in doing it. No, it's fair. Absolutely fair. I just wonder about this uh, sort of compulsion among all creative people, uh, not simply in in this realm of podcasting or, or radio making or but I mean, like I say, when I talked, I talked to authors and, you know, musicians and they're just like, yep, you know, at the end, I'll do it to you too. I'll probably say, what's next? 
there's always something. Very rarely does someone say, I have nothing <laughs> or I haven't thought about the next thing yet. You know, that's it's just fascinating. We, we're workers. And uh, anyway, I think that's, uh, that's interesting in itself. Um, I think it's important um, because sometimes making things can be really difficult. It's important to set your mind to it and see it through to the end. And so that's maybe the genesis of that feeling that you're describing as a compulsion in some people. Yeah. But I think it can become unhealthy when it's central to your identity. You know, for example, you see yourself as a podcaster primarily and not a person. And so in order to maintain that identity or that notion of yourself, then you just feel like it's necessary to keep making things. That's when it can get tricky. Yeah. I feel like this is now a self-inflicted intervention. Uh, <laughs> that I started. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, no, it's very, it's very insightful on your part for sure. Um, I want to ask you about some of the uh, lyrical inspiration here. Um, first of all, I want to uh, wish you my condolences. Send you my condolences uh, uh, about the loss of your your father. My understanding is your father passed away in 2019. Is that correct? Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Um, can you please uh, discuss? Uh, uh, your father's uh, role in terms of inspiring uh, some of the songs, if not all of the songs, on Night Creatures? Well, I wrote the lyrics in kind of a free associative state, and I didn't even realize that it was about my dad until after it was done. Um, so <laughs> it, it wasn't as though I was writing this as a tribute to him consciously and or that I wanted to tell a story consciously um it it really came uh, from the subconscious depths but um it would make sense that that would be an inspiration because it was a big part of my life for several years my dad got sick in 2010 and um for the first couple years that he was sick i was um managing his life i had powers of attorney and uh it was a big part of my life trajectory Um, it was like a full-time job managing his life on top of what I was doing as a composer and and musician at the time. And so I think it weighed heavily on me for many years. And, um, when you lose somebody slowly to a degenerative disease, um, well, it's from, in my case, it was, it was like losing somebody piece by piece over the course of nine years. So, Mm. um, anyway, it would. It seems obvious that that would be the source of some of these lyrics. Although I wasn't setting out to, you know, chronicle my story. So you're saying that, yeah, as you say, this may have seeped in uh, subconsciously on a conscious level. Uh, now that the record's out, um, do you have a perspective on things that are swimming around in here? Um, there's lots yeah. of sort of sleeping stuff and. Uh, you know, uh, dreams, these kinds of things, uh, and horrors, nightmares even. I think, I mean, Night Creatures has a maybe a, a double meaning in some sense. But um, yeah, can you, do you have a perspective on what's kind of going on now that you've, uh, now that people have processed the record and it's out in the world? Well, for me, it's, it's, a, it's an album of coming to terms, or the, the, the lyrical themes have to do with coming to terms with, mortality. And, um, I think our society is, if, if you view it through a certain lens, it's primarily set up to make us forget that we're going to die. I mean, the, the knowledge of our own mortality is 
one of the few essentially human qualities, but it's something that we try to obscure in our culture. And um, I think after being with somebody as they're dying and holding their hand as they're dying, it definitely took death off of a pedestal for me um, as somebody who was raised in an agnostic household and had a pretty firm relationship with existential dread from a young age. Um, hmm. it, it felt like a natural process and kind of a beautiful process and a release. And so I think that that comes out in the songs. Uh, you know, the, there's a line in the first song, dreams wash away. Um, the weight of will slowly diminishes. And, I, you know, I, I think a lot about how this notion of, you know, agency over our own lives is something that we grasp onto <laughs> with a tight fist, but it's also a burden, you know, this idea that we're responsible yeah. for our, our own lives. And it also might be an illusion too, you know, because yeah. we might, we might merely be the product of our genetics and our environment, neither of which we have control over. So, um, those are some thoughts that have come to mind after I wrote the album. And, uh, it was funny because I started thinking about it when we were, were rehearsing last year, um, with the band and during a break, everybody was talking about somebody that they love dying. And I was like, wait, why is everybody talking about this? But I guess that's hmm. when I started to realize that the lyrics, uh, you know, evoke that. Ah, so you weren't even consciously aware that maybe that was going on and, and your bandmates picked up on it. Is that what you mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Huh? That's fascinating in itself. You know, I was thinking about, your uh, singing on this record because uh, often the imagery is very vivid, uh, emotive um, for sure. Uh, but you haven't, I would say, for, you know, I, I hope you will uh, accept this observation. You have a very even way of delivering um, these lyrics on this record. Like it's a very calm, very calm delivery given not, you know, not, Again, this is not. This is a uh, meant to be something of a compliment. It's fascinating to me that the lyrics that I'm processing are fairly loaded with things, you know, ideas and images. But you're very like serene. You're kind of calmly singing. Can you talk about the relationship uh, between the lyrics and your approach to delivering them, and I guess even your your approach to singing generally? Well, again, there was no conscious thought put into my delivery. <laughs> hmm. Um, this is the first time I've tried singing on, on an album aside from some backing vocals here and there. Um, so I was just learning as I went and I was trying to just go inside of the songs and sing them the way I felt them. Um, but if I zoom out and kind of answer your question about the seeming kind of disparity in the between the delivery and the lyrics that sounds great to me i mean <laughs> I, i'm i'm a big fan of um you know songs that have that kind of duality you know for example a song that has really happy major chords and really dark lyrics for you know off the top of my head i like those kind of songs or songs that are really dark and moody but with uplifting beautiful lyrics yeah so yeah. um so i'll take the compliment <laughs> yeah it is a compliment i, I will say it wasn't it, it wasn't something that i i did consciously I, I was really quite literally just 
trying to learn how to sing as I went. Well, I appreciate that you, you know, in sort of describing other examples of such such a thing, I, I think you can appreciate that I, I'm sort of seeing it as uh, an interesting and fascinating bit of tension, um, the tension between the intent and the delivery, I guess. Uh, and it, yeah, it adds a lot to the songs, if I might say. Well, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome, Joe. Now, you did play some shows, right? Uh, before the pandemic, before the lockdown, you were able to play a little bit uh, and, and bring this to the stage. Is that correct? We played one show, um, and it was it was um, a great show. It was really fun. But it was intended to kind of be a rehearsal for the tours that have now been postponed. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, Not, I, okay, wait. It, it wasn't a rehearsal, but it was intended to be kind of like a trial run. It, yeah, warm know, up, warm to up work show. Out everything. Yeah, yeah, warm up show. It's, yeah, I don't want to say warm up because that would make it seem like we weren't doing our best for the people <laughs> that were there. But it, you know what I mean? It was. It was. I kind do, of like yeah. a proof of concept. Yeah. No, I mean you gotta you gotta figure out what it's like on its you know put it on its feet at least once before you uh, book a tour. I'm sure, right? Yeah, and it, it's a relatively logistically complicated um, project. You know, there were 20 people on stage. Yeah, for one thing. Um, so I I just had to work that all out before we could book a tour. Yeah, that's yeah, fair. So. Uh, as I've been speaking with other musicians and other people who are used to uh, traveling to spread the word about whatever they've made, um, what's your yeah? Tell me about your mindset. Night Creatures is as I'm as I said, it's out. It's available now as a as a record. But um, how do you spread the word about it in isolation? What, what do you have plans uh, for uh, you know live streams and these kinds of things? Last week I recorded. Um, a set of music, a kind of stripped back acoustic set with a string quartet and the keyboard player that plays in my band. And it was really fun. So hopefully we can do more things similar to that. Um, And then, you know, another way that the word has been spread about this album has been because the first song on the album was featured in a TV show that I composed called the midnight gospel. Mm. Uh, And that exposed the, millions of people to the song uh, in a really great way because because the show was really um in sync with my own aesthetic and my own and the place in my life <laughs> yeah uh that I was at at the time uh, the, the the episode that has the song is an animated podcast conversation between the co-creator of the show Duncan Trussell and his mother as she was dying so it was really like a synchronous wow. collaboration. And um, I, you know, I found out that I was going to start working on the show as I was driving to the airport to go say goodbye to my dad. So there was something there. I think it's beyond coincidence that I worked on that show with those people. Uh, and, it, and it was a great experience. And luckily they wanted to use one of my songs in the show. Yeah, a lot of uh, kismet there, or whatever you want to call it, uh, in your work, it seems. You know, things dovetailing uh, in interesting ways. Um, It's rare for me to have someone uh, like yourself on the show who occupies uh, realms that are both, uh, you know, deeply impacted by the pandemic uh, creative realms. So, I mean, you are involved often in uh, TV and, and film productions, 
and you are uh, hopefully if all goes when things are going well you're a touring musician um, how busy are you as a working uh, composer and musician at the moment given that uh, you know touring is pretty much frozen at the moment I assume some TV productions are as we're speaking maybe back I'm not sure how busy are you right now Joe well I'm really fortunate to be just busy enough I'm working on four projects right now um, versus last time last year around this time maybe seven or eight okay so I'm working 40 50 hour weeks instead of 80 90 hour weeks and I'm enjoying it it's giving me time to write the next album um, and it's it's incredibly lucky that I have these opportunities. Um, so many great musicians who have been on my show are just uh, kind of lost until there's a vaccine. Yeah. And so I, I, every day I feel really lucky that I have the opportunities that I have. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm. For what it's worth, I feel the same. Uh, and that's uh, that's heartening to hear. So, in keeping with this, uh, what is next for you in terms of? Uh, your podcast. Uh, it sounds like you're working on music, as you just said. But um, if you want to add anything else uh, in terms of uh, maybe uh, Night Creatures related uh, films, videos, things, uh, what's coming up? I, I have no idea what you're up to beyond uh, this moment, Joe. Please tell us. <laughs> uh, there are three Night Creatures videos in the can, uh, music videos. One was directed by Fred Armisen. Uh, whom you may know from Portlandia and SNL, et cetera. Great drummer. And then, um, Fantastic drummer. A drummer, yeah. And a former <laughs> guest of my podcast. Yeah, I've I talked to Fred. Uh, I talked to Fred once when he was did you are you a fan of his uh fake drummer character? <laughs> or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> yeah. And actually I was lucky enough to get to co produce his stand up special about his life as a drummer. Oh. Um stand up for drummers. Oh nice. So I I'd worked with him on that. Actually that was another inspiration for making my album because he was being openly personal in a way that I don't think he had before. I see. So it was interesting seeing him make that statement. But um, so he, he directed the video for the title track of the album and that was just completed. And then we have two videos that kind of run continuously one into the next for the songs uh, Minor and Nuclear Rainbow, which also run one from the next on the album. Yep run to the next uh, on the album. And then, uh, like I said, I recorded a set in my backyard last week that looks great and that, that that's just being put together right now. And uh, I'm writing the next album and uh, it looks like we won't be able to tour for at least a year. So mm-hmm. we're getting holds in case it's possible to tour in a year. And it's my plan to have two albums um to draw from by the time we can play live again wow all right that's awesome that's great uh congrats on all that i'm glad it's it's interesting right we've been given a bit of time i know it seems like things are suspended but i feel like we have time don't don't you feel that way i mean i definitely think especially at the beginning of the pandemic i had time to think about what i wanted to do next and um, as you asked me before, you know, what's the difference between working on my own projects versus working for other people? I think that there's a right now there's a symbiotic relationship and, it, and I'm 
I'm kind of playing with what the right balance is as far as how much time I want to be spending on my own stuff versus working with other folks. And I think when I started making the album, I was probably spending 70%, 70% of my time servicing other people's projects and 30% on my own. And ultimately I want to flip that ratio, but the next step is getting to 50, 50, which is about where I'm at right now. And it feels good. And it makes me better at servicing other people's projects to have my own outlet just because it keeps me creatively stimulated in a different way. And it also, you know, creates a situation where I can get my own ideas out into the world. And, um, I I don't feel like I need to, uh, inject myself into other people's projects. Um, but it also gives me a sense of what I'm uniquely qualified to offer to other people. That's, that sounds okay. Good. No, that's great. I, I'm glad that you've, uh, you know, reached certain conclusions about, uh, how your work, uh, intersects and, and, you know, can be, I guess, most uh, efficient, so to speak. Um, as we're speaking, when was the last time you released a new episode of your podcast? I think it was two weeks ago and that was the Steve Jordan episode. Right. So, uh, when do you imagine, as we're speaking, when do you imagine the the show might sort of be back or another episode might be uh, posted? Well, I have something like 15 in the can, and I think we'll go back to the daily episodes sometime soon, maybe next week. We'll go oh, back okay. to the daily episodes for a while um, and uh, see how it goes from there. But, um, you know, it's it's great because I, I think, you know, I haven't taken many breaks from it but when i have the audience stays there and i think we started the show before there was the glut of podcasts that there are now and i i'm fortunate that we have a relatively um that we have a uh, you know a pretty loyal audience yeah well that's great okay so we'll look out for it's uh for those who don't know it's called the trap set uh with uh, joe wong so that's uh available on all the podcast platforms. Uh, if you want to uh, direct people to learn more about uh, Night Creatures and, and your own work, Joe, where would you like to send them? Uh, they can go to Night Creatures, and Night is spelled N-I-T-E dot com. Or they can follow me on social media. Yeah. I'm at the trap set. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So, you're yeah. Okay. At the trap set or uh, Night Creatures creatures.com joe if we can go out on a song uh from this album i wonder if you can choose one and and if so if you can tell us uh, why you chose it um let's go with the long parade which is the penultimate song on the album and the reason i'm choosing it is that it's kind of the the most unobtrusive song on the album uh but i think it has a deep meaning underneath the surface and um i've been enjoying playing it live uh when we rehearsed and played with the quartet last week it really felt good and uh it's not one of the designated singles off the album so why don't we go with that one sure let's do it this is the long parade from night creatures great new album by uh, joe wong Uh, joe this was a, a pleasure uh, thank you for making time for me on on my podcast, and I wish you the best of luck with everything in the future. Someday we'll have to uh, reciprocate, and you can come on our podcast. <laughs> that would be lovely. I appreciate it. Thank you, Joe. That's what we call in the podcasting industry a podcast 69. <laughs> uh, I just made that up. 
It's vaguely dirty, but yes, I think that's what we call it. I'll have to check the podcast newsletter that we all subscribe to. upon your door and with the devil you'll stay follow the long parade into the sea Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ah, very special thanks to Joe Wong for appearing on this, the 567th episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and is available on all Apple and Google platforms and, and other things as well. Spotify is among those other things. The show also has a uh, modest YouTube page. The thing goes up on the YouTube. I don't do much gussying up. It just goes up. If you if you don't have any of those other things, but you have YouTube, you can listen to the shows. 
I put them up there with just like a photo, you know? It's just like a photo, and then the guest and I talk. It's the audio from the podcast. Anyway, it's on all those things. Uh, but if you can't find an episode that you've heard about and are looking for, or if you want to learn more about me and sign up for my uh, semi-regularly scheduled newsletter, please visit my website, vishkana.com. Uh, you can like Creative Control on Facebook if you want to there. Uh, you can also follow the show on Twitter, at vishcreative, or follow me directly at vishkana also please visit patreon.com slash creative control to make a flexible monthly donation to, to sustain this podcast to keep it going uh six dollars or more gets you access to uh exclusive audio content so uh consider that or whatever you can afford really uh, all of the uh, uh financial support you provide does in fact keep the show on its feet. So again, patreon.com slash creative control to make your flexible monthly donation today or now, even before the end of the day. Now now would be good. Thanks again to live at massyhall.com where you can watch beautifully captured concerts by some great Canadian artists. Uh, also, Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton for their in kind support for this show. Uh, my dear old friend Jim Guthrie supplies some music for the show. You're hearing some of it in the background right now. Uh, please head over to Jim's uh, worldwide website, which is uh, jimguthrie.org. Lots of great music there. He's got a nice Bandcamp page, too. Very comprehensive. jimguthrie.org. And finally, thank you. Thank you again for listening to this episode with uh, Joe. Uh, Joe has a podcast called uh, The Trap Set. No doubt some of you have... Uh, checked in on this show because of his show well feel free to uh, check out this show too you might like it i think joe and i have uh, some similar sensibilities even some similar guests so uh yeah check out the back catalog there tell your friends about the show maybe subscribe to it those things that's all helpful thank you very much for everything you do to be a good person and i will talk to you very soon bye for now sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs> 